Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and I'm very excited for today's episode in particular because we were introduced by a mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, and I'm going to call him out, Chris Grubbs, who I believe to be an active listener of the podcast, might be out there in the audience listening to this episode. So thank you, Chris, for the introduction. Today's guest is an experienced change leader who prides herself on being an active listener with excellent communication skills. She's currently the manager of change leadership for frontline operations at Southwest Airlines. Please welcome Jennifer Pickert. Hello, Jennifer. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me. And, a, and another shout out to Chris. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan too. So uh, that's great. Thank you. That's awesome. Well, I know that we have at least one listener out in the audience because Chris texts me every once in a while and, <laughs> and gives me feedback on the shows. So um, it's fantastic to have him here. And I'm excited to have uh, this interview as a result of that uh, relationship with Chris. So let's get started as we always do and tell us your take. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless frontline workforce today? I think you're in a, you have a, a particularly good vantage point to answer this question for us and our audience today. So uh, give us your take on that. Yeah, I think finding a way to communicate effectively with people about what's changing, why is it changing, how is it going to impact their world when, um, they are so incredibly mobile and not entirely device dependent. Uh, you know, especially at Southwest Airlines, if your job is to move bags, you know, if your job is to check people in, if your job is to make sure that a plane is leaving at the right time, you're not just sitting at your desk or even on your mobile device to sit there and say, oh, what do I need to read? What do I need to understand? Um, you are going to deal with those things right on time. And, um, We've got to capture attention. We've got to capture hearts and minds. We don't have a ton of time to be able to do that. We need to do it quickly. We need to do it nimbly. Um, and in a way that captures their attention enough that they want to stay tuned in and be part of the change. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you raised about not being device dependent. Because in your business in particular, a lot of the work is dependent on mobile technology, but not all of the time. So talk me through how you're closing that gap a little bit. Um, in, all, in all transparency, it's still something that, that we're working to figure out how to crack the nut on. And um, truly, at the end of the day, I really believe what moves that needle are relationships. Um, it's not going to be about the fancy newsletter that you put out or the digital sign that you show. It's really about understanding the culture and the dynamics at a specific location, be that an airport, um, be that uh, an area at headquarters, like wherever that environment is. And going there and understanding what people are up against, understanding what their days look like, understanding what's most important to them. Um, you, can't, you can't win hearts and minds without knowing their language. Um, so as we start to look into 22, and how we're planning our projects and what we're trying to do, one of the things that my team and I are trying to look at is how do we get closer to the work? 
And I know that that sounds really simple, but if you look at what in, in the airline industry over the course of the last two years, what that has been, those people haven't had time for somebody over their shoulder trying to figure out how they do things, trying to to to, to navigate that with them. Um, but I really do believe if we can find a way to get our practitioners out into the operation, see, and, and not just a view from Dallas, right? Like uh, we, we hear a lot of that at Southwest Airlines is, oh, did you just go over to the Dallas airport? Like, no, we need to go to Denver. We need to go to Phoenix. We need to go to Ohio. Um, you know, we need to look around the operation to see uh, what those different challenges are. And we need to find people that can be um, advocates in those areas that can, um, that we can meet with sooner to talk about, hey, you know, this is the new technology that we want to go and deploy, or these are the new things that we're thinking about, and get their feedback. How would this help you? What would it not? So we can come back and design solutions that are people-focused, not technology-focused. Okay. You've given me a real lot there that I want to go peel apart and come back to, but All right. I want to give the audience an opportunity to learn a little bit more about you first to give some context okay. of, of your past right. and how you ended up in the role that you did. And then we're going to circle back around. I've highlighted a few things in my notes here, so we've got a lot to talk about. So let's let's go back. Tell tell us a little bit about you, how you came into the role, but but let's dig deep because you and I had a conversation about your education background, and yeah. I would love for you to share a little bit more of that detail with the audience today. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, just because I'm super proud of this, um, I am from the great state of Kansas. I grew up in a very small rural farming community. Um, and I just wanted to give a shout out to Chase Kansas if you have any listeners um, out there in rural Kansas. Um, so uh, I grew up and I grew up in a place that, you know, absolutely the heartland, um, really good people, people who wanted to work hard, wanted to help their neighbors a good place, but there wasn't just a ton of vision, you know, as, as, as a little girl growing up in the seventies, you don't, you know, you can be a nurse or you can be a teacher and there's not a lot of in between. Uh, but my mother really, really did try to give me as much vision as she possibly could get me out in the world. And that sort of led me into theater and I loved it. I loved it from the earliest ages, um, all to today. And when I was in college and I was paying my own way through college, so I didn't really have to answer to anybody else or what I was going to do, right? It was my money. I could do, do how I wanted. And um, my father died very uh, suddenly when I was a junior in college. And I realized that I didn't, I didn't want to spend my life not doing something that I really loved or that I really wanted to do. And so I got my degree in theater. Um, I was totally motivated uh, just by that sort of moment in time and, and my love for this. And, you know, I'm skipping ahead just a little bit. People might be wondering, well, how did you end up in, in business at all? But I'll tell you that my theater degree served me incredibly well because a director of, of, of a play or a movie or anything that you're directing, all of them, their primary responsibility is to bring everybody together to a common vision, to accomplish a specific goal. So as a director in theater, you're working with costumers, you're working with actors, you're working with scenic designers, and all of these people have a different artistic vision. And all of these people have different types of egos and different types of ways for achieving that specific goal. And your job is to unite all of those people towards that so you can deliver a really solid performance when, when the curtain goes up. 
And it's been really no different in my career at all. Um, I've never been super intentional about my career. I found change leadership, change management completely by accident. Um, but it has filled that thing that I love, which is about, I have this vision. I want to do this thing. How can I get other people excited about it and aligned to it? And you shared uh, a brief version of that with me when we were preparing. I, I just uh, felt pulled into the, the part of the people coordination and communicating with different types of people. And as you were just telling that story to think about lighting folks and the costumers and the, and the, the folks that are building uh, the set, all of those different types of artistic personalities. And then of course the performers themselves, um, they all kind of come to the table with different skills, different capabilities, different mindset about the performance. And, and your job is, as director, as you so elegantly described is really to pull all those people together. And so the, the connection there with your role as a change leader inside an organization with all of those same complexities uh, is, is just really amazing. And, and I'd love to explore it further. So do you, do you feel that like, do you actually think about change leadership in your role as, as if to some extent you're putting on a performance on a project? Like to, tell me how that kind of plays out a little bit in your day-to-day -day role. Um, so I think the, I think that the thing that is probably, um, probably at the very base of all of that is I think everybody on some level is insecure or worried about how their work is going to perceived, be perceived. Um, are, are they doing a good job? Are, are they meeting the mark? All of those sorts of things. And more than uniting people, I really like to focus on if we're trying to get to a specific point, what's in your way? What are you concerned about? What, what are you fearful about? And what do I need to do? What can I help provide you with to navigate those fears to get, to get to the point of what I'll call adoption, right? You've gotten over the fear. You've done the thing. You've achieved the vision. How can I help with that? And I'll, let me give you another sort of example of that because I think that this is probably the most black and white sort of example that I can give you of that. Um, I graduated college and I started working in technology um, and it was inside sales for a computer reseller. So that's kind of where I started to get my feet in, in, into the water of, of technology. But again, it was never with any intention. I sort of bounced around. I learned a bunch of different things. I worked for a theatrical design company for a few years and that was magnificent. It was, it was, it was a great opportunity. But a job opportunity landed in my lab with a company that worked with welfare recipients. And specifically, these were people who had been impacted in the Dallas area by the uh, Katrina and Rita hurricanes. And these people qualified for a specific line of welfare. And they would come into our office and we would literally teach these people how to pull a laptop out of the box and turn it on and use a mouse. These are the vast majority of folks that came in had never even used a mouse before. And when they logged into the computer, there was a pre-established online learning community. And these classes, you know, trained them on how to use Microsoft project uh, products, how to um, properly write an email, um, how to build a resume. And this is a group of people that haven't 
had those kinds of opportunities. They haven't had those time, uh, the time to develop those types of skills. And the fear that they had when they were coming into the office at times was palpable. Like there was always a lot of excitement about it, right? Like they're getting a laptop, um, which at the time this was, um, I guess this would have been in like around the early 2000s, somewhere in there. Well, post-Katrina, whatever year that was. Sure. So it was 20-year anniversary we just had a fall. Um, so technology just looked a little bit different. It wasn't quite as available to everybody as it is today. I don't even think the iPhone was out at the top. Yeah. And um, watching them come in, learn how to use this, gain the confidence, gain the new skills was absolutely unbelievably powerful. And I don't remember exactly what the statistics were, but it was overwhelming the number of people who entered that program graduated that program and then within a couple of years were off of federal assistance because all of a sudden a whole new world of opportunities that opened up for them and i think i I was with that company for a little while and another friend of mine popped up and said hey you know you've got this interesting skill set why don't you consider consulting and i started to explore that and one of the things that they said to me in that process of interviewing for the consulting job was oh well that was change management what, what you did with this company. And I had had no idea. I, I had never heard of change management. I didn't understand what it was. I hadn't even heard of a methodology for it. Um, and that experience really helped me understand, like, this is what I enjoy doing. I really enjoy helping people overcome fears. Or, or maybe even the better way to say it is helping people with the stories that they tell themselves about what things are going to be. Because we very, we very rarely tell a very positive, this is all going to be great. I'm going to come out here. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be stronger. I'm going to be stronger. Things are going to be easier. We, we typically tell our tentative stories to ourselves about that. So overcoming that is really what I love about the work that I do. That's such a fantastic story. And uh, especially with the profoundly positive impact that that program had, that's really a, a, an inspiring story. And, you know, it, it, you you explained something that I think existed in that the profile of those folks that you were helping, you know, with some very entry-level, you know, technology adoption capabilities. But I think that same fear and anxiety persists even throughout corporate America. And, you know, I spent the early part of my career on just purely the technology side. We were building, deploying, supporting you know, technology solutions, mostly for frontline workers, which is kind of how we've all led to these conversations here. But I, and I knew there was reluctance to adopt technology by a lot of the men and women on the front lines. Um, I thought it was mostly stubbornness. I didn't really get connected until the last few years that a big part of that was really about anxiety, the, the genuine fear of what this impact, uh, what this technology, how it was going to impact a day in their life. And some of it, I think, is just insecurities, as you've talked about, just insecurities. Sometimes they just don't want to be embarrassed that they're the only one or they perceive they're going to be the only one that can't figure this thing out, right? Uh, other times, there are other fears about, is this technology going to eliminate my job or that of one of my colleagues here, right? But I think fear, I love that you've started off with that part of the conversation because I think that's such an important element and probably one of the biggest elements. And I also think it's so easy to overlook because we're in this era right now where we look around and we just think that everybody's adopted technology universally. 
And so therefore, hey, it's just a mobile device. Hey, it's just a mobile app. It's easy. But that's not the way that people perceive that tech innovation inside an enterprise environment um, where there's a lot of other external pressures on that experience. I would completely agree with that. And like, if, if you stop to think about, okay, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a person who works on the ramp and my job is to move bags from A to Z. And for 15 years, I've been going and getting the bags, moving them, putting them on the belt loader, putting them on the plane and moving on. Now, all of a sudden, and, and I've had to do that quickly because I have to turn that plane as fast as possible. I'm measured on that. My company performance is measured on that. And the thing that drives me the most is making sure that the people that are on that plane get there as quickly as they possibly can, because ultimately that's my job is to connect those people to what's important in their lives as quickly as I can. So now you're telling me that I have to take this scanner and I have to scan it when I get it. And I have to scan the bag when I'm putting it on the plane and I have to scan the bag when it's coming off of the plane. And you have just added in a step. You have just added time to my job. And now you're taking away from the importance of my getting these people as quickly as I can to where they need to go. So you're complicating my job and you are intruding on my mission. So, I mean, I love this story because I've been a part of some of these initiatives in your industry when we first started implementing bag scanning, um, you know, in, in aviation. And, and so I know that pain and that, that, um, the frustration from the men and women on the ramp about exactly what you just described. So let's talk that through a little bit. I mean, this is how, how would they, how did you overcome that challenge to explain to them? Uh, yes, everything you just said is correct, but we still need to do this. You know, one of the things now in full transparency, I was not part of that project, right? That was another buddy of mine. And I think that they did incredible work on that. Um, but at the end of the day, at Southwest Airlines, the, the thing that it's so true about Southwest Airlines, like we really, the, we really are focused on uh, getting people to, to uh, connecting them to what's most important in their lives. Like I don't know really anybody that doesn't doesn't operate in their work without thinking about that. It really is front of mind. They do a tremendous job about keeping the people real for us. So I think the very best way that you can explain to a ramp agent, look, we need you to scan these bags. And yes, it's going to take more time. But now in the event that this, that this bag doesn't get to where it needs to go, the person is always going to know where that bag is. It's not, it's not going to be lost. We are going to be able to track it, which then makes the job of our customer service agents easier. It makes the job on the folks that are um, at the baggage terminals waiting for folks. They know how to answer those questions when people show up and ask where the bags are. So we might be putting a little bit more on your plate, but ultimately it is, it is a convenience and a service that we're offering to our, our customers. Um, so you can, you can start to chip away at some of the uh, resistance with those sorts of things. Well, and, and you spoke early about understanding the culture and, you know, if ever there was a culture driven company, certainly in your uh, industry, you know, Southwest is is the the poster child for that, right? And you also spoke about relationships with the men and women out on the front lines, and so being able to understand the culture and have the relationships, and to to take the time to build and continue to nurture the relationships with the men and women who will be impacted by this, uh, it sounds to me that that really helps to bridge the gap. It's really not about the technology in a lot of cases; 
um, we have to really understand the human impact to that. And, and you're doing a great job of explaining how, how Southwest and, and you and your team can really help facilitate that. But I'll, I'll give you another example. Uh, Southwest recently completed an implementation of, of uh, maintenance, which is a, it's a maintenance system. And we, we literally two weeks ago finished the migration of all of our aircraft into this single system. So it, uh, it allows us to keep track of all of the paperwork and all of the maintenance and all of the parts and all of the inventory for every single part and piece that's on an aircraft for every single aircraft. It was a tremendous accomplishment. And as we were, as we were going through the process of training and preparing people and getting them ready for this huge shift, because we previously um, had our aircraft in two different systems and one of them had been around for 30 years. So they don't even have to think about how to use that tool. So again, right? Like you really need to get into the shoes of the, of the people that, that this is happening to. And um, while I didn't always have the opportunity to get out and meet these people face to face, I managed to develop a few relationships with some supervisors. And these were guys that I would call once or twice a week, hang out, get to know them and, and just visit. And, and who are they? And what are they doing? And, and what is life like for them where they're at? And as we started training, and as we started bringing people to the table to figure out how they were going to be using Matenex, I stayed in really close contact with these guys and they'd say, oh, Jennifer, you know, it would be great as if we had a cheat sheet here, you know, to, to show us where the job aids are. And, and, you know, sometimes I think when you're doing these big projects like this, because they're so huge and they touch every single aspect of the work that we all of a sudden think, oh my gosh, my solution has to be really complex and hard and challenging and it's got to meet all these needs. But at the end of the day, if you if you just go up to somebody and say, hey, what's going to help you? It could be as easy as the cheat sheet that you hand them that helps them know where to go and get the information they actually need. And you're not going to know that if you're not asking people what they what they actually need. Um, I really do think that that is, it's, it's not as easy as that, but I do think it is as simple as that. I think that's a great distinction, you know, easy versus simple. Uh, I'm not suggesting at all that it's easy. There's a lot of work and Apple used to say this all the time, you know, like making things simple is actually really hard, Yes. but, but it is important in this case that, you know, you're communicating with those men and women. And it's, it is really as simple as asking questions of them to say, how can we serve you better? And, and what you just talked about also has an element of communication in that what, what is the best way for this information to be communicated? With the men and women that are going to be impacted by that and there's really no better way than to you know solicit their feedback i love that something else that you talked about in the beginning that i'd really like to explore because i i think it's possible airlines suffer from the geographic distribution uh obviously they're very geographically distributed companies but there's another thing that i have found really different about working with the airlines is that every station every airport operation has some variance in the behavior, right? So when you look at oh, national sure. retailers, for example, right? Best Buy, Home Depot, Lowe's, Target, you know, these national retailers, of course they have geographic distribution, but their whole model is predicated on replicating the exact same store footprint to the extent possible, right? And they run the operation as similarly as possible, or at least that's how I perceive it from my experience. But in the airlines, you're, you're working where you have, you know, different governments, 
that run the airport, you know, the local city government or, or other airport authorities and things like that. And so the operations do vary quite a bit from one station to the next. How does that impact when you're rolling out technology to the men and women on the front lines? How is that impacting it? And I presume that's part of why you talked about going to the various places to see, you know, work in the flow. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, that's sort of an interesting, that's a really interesting question. You know, I cannot say that we actually um, changed our approach based off of geography, but I can tell you we changed our approach based off of how many people might work in a specific station. So from a maintenance perspective, okay, you, you're going to have really large maintenance hubs, and then you might have one mechanic who works at the Kansas City Airport, and he's just the guy that, that, that shows up at night to do the things that need to be done. Um, and he's going to need a buddy, right? Like he's going to have to partner with somebody because he's just just a one-man shop. So it was less about geography and far more about the size. Um, so the larger the station, obviously, we need to make sure that they're getting more information and that we're, if we need to have a roadshow or if we need to have a meeting, it's not just at 10 o'clock in the morning, right? Like we need to have a night shift. We need to have an early morning shift. We need to make sure that we are showing up and available for all of the different shifts equally and equitably. Um, and then for those stations that are a lot smaller to make sure that we're not just completely overwhelming them with information. Um, so, so that's more of where the tailoring of the approach comes in, right? Yeah. Like, I, I, I like to kind of think about it as what size of a hammer do you need? You know, do you need a tap hammer or do you need a sledgehammer? And it just, a lot of that depends on size and, and how many folks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When we think about the men and women on the front lines, I, we started this conversation today asking what you think is the biggest challenge facing frontline workers today. And we talked a little bit about, you know, communication and um, how we're able to, to communicate what is changing in, in an incredibly mobile environment. But if we were to flip that around a little bit, and if we were to sit down with a few of the frontline workers, what do you think they would describe as the biggest challenge they're actually facing? Um, well, right now the operation is, the operation has just been a very challenging environment um, for all kinds of reasons the last two years. Um, and I think the thing that they would say is, how is it that you expect me to change and adopt new technology or ways of working when we are short staffed, we're having to work doubles, we're having to show up every day, you know, 30 days in a row I've been working just to maintain the operation. And you want me to take time away from that to take a class or to show up for your road show or to come to a change network meeting? Like, how am I supposed to do both of those things? How is everything a number one priority? I, I, I think that's, I think that's what you need. And it's so challenging to, to not, to not have to do all of those things. It's not like we can just stop, right? Like yeah. so many of the things that we're doing at Southwest are really ultimately about making those things that they need to do on the operation easier. But to get to that point is, is going to be challenging. There's no easy way around it. You have to go through it. You don't, you don't get to go around it to get to the other side. Um, and you know, while I hope the operational issues that we've been experiencing continue to improve, and I hope that 22 um, is just better for everybody in, in terms of um, just in terms of the world that we're living in. Um, 
And I hope that we have more flexibility and freedom to give people to put less on their plates so they can focus more on these changes that we're, we're asking them to, to adopt. Yeah. I think it's, it's a very legitimate question and challenge. Uh, this is an unprecedented time. And it seems at the same time that we're dealing with some, you know, unprecedented circumstances that uh, many industries are trying to uh, transform digitally faster than ever before, right? So it's kind of creating the perfect storm where the men and women, you know, on the front lines are, are feeling the pressure of just doing their job the way it has been and the way it is today. And at the same time, we are, there's just a, a significant amount of change that's trying to be injected into many, many roles on the front lines. And so it's, it's, I, I think their question's fair, right? And I think it's on all of us who are implementing technology to then say, okay, how can we help them address that? You know, one of the things that I thought was really profoundly interesting to me was we had had another project and it was happening in ground ops. And I wasn't part of the genesis of this project. I kind of came in at the tail end of it. And there was a group of somewhere between 10 and 20, uh, ground ops folks, gate agents, um, who had been asked to come in and work on this project. And these were people who had never been part of the technology project. They, they didn't have that background at all. Um, and some of them were very long tenured and they came into the project. They were excited to have the opportunity and their minds were blown by the amount of time that there was to do all the planning and the amount of time that there was to do all of the testing and the way that the, this project came to make sure that ground ops agents were coming in to test and play with the system. Because if you're out there in the operation fighting the fires on a daily battle, uh, on a daily basis, you don't see that. You just assume that somebody's just slamming something out to you with all of its defects and all of its shortcomings and not solving all of the problems that you have you really don't believe that there's been any thought given to how you're going to go and do that. And, you know, I think if I could wave a wand and, and do one thing, it would be, you know, as, as a headquarters based employee, I really do have a lot of opportunities to go out and do days in the field and see how people are doing things. And, I, and I'm profoundly grateful for that. I've learned a ton and met a lot of great people. They don't have the same opportunity. And I think, you know, it, it if any of us take the time to walk in somebody else's shoes, you'll learn an awful lot and you stop drawing some conclusions that just, just aren't true. Um, so yeah, I would love for, um, to be able to involve more of our, um, of our end users and the processes that we go through to help develop that appreciation and understanding. They might be a whole lot more willing to, um, to do what we need them to do. I have to admit, you just flipped something upside down in my head. Uh, which I'm, I'm excited about. And that is I've taken such pride over uh, the course of my career in getting to spend time in the field, go on field trips to go see a day in the life of the men and women who we will be impacting through, you know, whatever technology, um, you know, implementation I was involved with at the time. And I, I think we did better as teams throughout all of those journeys, because we spent the time to go out to various stations or various retail stores, various warehouses or manufacturing facilities or whatever it was to go, you know, try to spend a day in the life. But what you flipped upside down in my head for me is um, we don't give the men and women on the front lines the same opportunity to do that. And, and that's actually, um, you know, it's, it's part of, I think, 
the communication gap that we may have is that there is a perception exactly as you said it that we the technology teams have just come out and dropped the stuff in their court like there has been no no thinking done around this it doesn't mean that it's perfect but most of the time a lot of thought and consideration has been put into this but uh if you don't know what's going on behind the scenes then you have no way of knowing that and that's a really interesting challenge but you know in a scenario where you could roll out technology that could affect you know, 5,000 or 10,000 workers on the ramp, you can't parade all 10,000 of them back through, you know, through headquarters to say, hey, we want you to come and spend a couple of days, you know, in, in the IT, you know, project area. Um, so how do you, how do you distribute that knowledge to massive numbers of people that will be affected? Have you found any ways to, to do that successfully yet? Um, we've done it. And I think to varying degrees of success. Um, so when we were working on the main next implementation, um, we gathered a group of 20 people, I think it was about 20, um, from all of the different areas of technical operations to come in and work as our subject matter experts. Now that's a drop in the bucket of the number of people that actually work in technical operations. But that system was designed by people in the operation. It was not designed by technology folks. So when we would do our change network meetings, when we would send out our newsletters, when we would have meetings with supervisors, we did everything that we could to make sure that the voices that are frontline heard were frontline voices. You know, I didn't, nobody knows who I am. I, I can't stand up and have any credibility with a mechanic of any sort whatsoever. I have to be standing next to a mechanic who has seen the work that I have done, who understands the direction I'm trying to go, and he has to use his language to talk to his team. And um, we did a lot of that on that particular implementation. And uh, again, depending on the location, depending on the timing, depending on the operational needs, they're, they're, in some instances, that was more successful than others. But um, I'll tell you, when we, when we did end up going live with that, like we, the mechanics didn't stand up and say, hey, we aren't doing this, right? Like it, in terms of, I'll figure this out. It's not great. I'm having a really hard time here. But nobody stood up and said they weren't going to do it. And I consider that just a huge success from that perspective. Well, you addressed a, a few other things throughout the conversation today that probably led to that success as well. You know, letting them know, um, you know, the quick start guides that you talked about earlier, letting them know where they can get additional support, how they can find the information that they need are, are all of the building blocks. And, and that's something else I took away from what you talked about earlier about directing a show. You know, it's not just one thing that we can do that's going to make things go from unsuccessful to successful but it's it's about all the building blocks of considering all of the different roles and all of the 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 tiny little moves that we can make that can have a big impact over time i know you didn't say those words but that's really uh, that's a lot of what i took from how you described the way that you think about this and i think that's really powerful i think uh, i know i'm guilty of this kind of looking for the single silver bullet that's going to be the one thing that will change the outcome and the reality is there isn't typically a single silver bullet. It's, it's a combination of a lot of small things. And that goes back to something you said before, which is that, uh, you know, doing things, we need to make them simple, but that's not easy. And so to make it simple sometimes takes a lot of thought and a lot of, uh, you know, small moves. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. So when you're thinking about change management and change leadership, uh, and I like your term that you use for that at Southwest, um, when you think about the difference, or do you think about the difference, I guess I should ask, between how you would handle change leadership for frontline workers versus how you might handle it if you were changing things with you know, uh, employees that 
or desk-based employees, you know, your more typical corporate uh, worker profile. Do you have like a deliberate consideration for the difference between the frontline versus corporate workers? 100%. Okay. Um, yeah, 100%. Um, and even going back to, again, the maintenance implementation, um, you know, you have your, your frontline mechanics and then you have the, the back office workers at, um, in tech ops. The people who work in, in the back office, right, your desk workers, they're so comfortable with checking email. They're so comfortable with logging into QuickBase. They understand all of these different things that they have to go and do every single day. Um, I'm not going to say it's easier for them to adopt a change, but we can reasonably expect that if we send an email communication, they're going to read it. With a frontline worker, I can't even guarantee that they're logging into their email. So you can't, you can't, and that's one of the things that drives me crazy about communications plans. Like, well, we've sent this, we've sent this, we've sent this, we've sent this, we've sent this. What has it been read? Was it effective? Do people get the information that they need? Because it's a two-way street. It isn't just a, it isn't just a, well, I've, I've sent it and I had done now. My, my work here is done. This is great. I'm going to go have a beer now. It just, it doesn't work that way. It's got to be effective. So for people working at a desk, I think it's a lot more easier, um, a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, they're just, they're just used to that. Yeah, I think so. And I think it makes the gap wider. You know, the communication gap is wider for frontline workers. And, and you just said something about, you know, do they even open their email? We've come across a lot of circumstances where the frontline workers in the organization don't even have corporate email. So it's, it's not even a viable method, right? Because it just simply doesn't exist. They may not have corporate issued, uh, you know, cell phones sitting in their pocket that we can send text messages to and, and things like that. So even if those communications would be equally effective, we just may be constrained because we don't have those methods available to us in many cases with frontline workers. Right. And, or, uh, or, or would they log into their device, right? Like I haven't checked my email in a week. Well, now there's 500 email and 400 of those are informational, you know, uh, not necessarily things that I need to consume immediately, right? So how are we going to go through all of those things to find the two things that are urgent to make sure that, that I've paid the proper attention? Yeah. So yeah, email is just not an effective communication for the front line. So, so that brings up another question though. And so you talked about some simple things like printed quick start guides and things like that, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. new school is best to be served by old school methods. So I, I love that. Um, are you using any other technology, not for the purposes of operations, I know you're, you know, uh, increasing the use of technology for operations, but are you using any technology or tools to actually facilitate the change management aspect? Um, or are, are you really left to just kind of like we talked about paper or email, other methodologies? I'm just curious to understand what technologies you may be trying to apply to solve some of those challenges that you described. You know, I'm going to go back to relationships and technology cannot uh, replace relationships. Yeah. You really need to understand the landscape of the people that you're working with and what they need. And no technology tool is going to do that. And I haven't found the technology tool that can do that yet. Um, so, you know, we, we try all sorts of different things to, again, varying degrees of success. Um, Things like digital signs, like, you know, we have signs out all over the place and, and those signs, while they are informational, they point people to other places to go and get information. 
uh, we're using SharePoint a lot. Um, we just did a project in Ground Ops where we had an incredibly dynamic SharePoint site and an incredibly well-visited SharePoint site, probably one of the best that I've seen in my tenure at Southwest. And I think that that was because it was very easy to read. It was very large format. It was very simply laid out, and I understood what I needed to go and do when I got there. Um, and that's not a new technology. I just think in this particular instance, it was more effectively used. Um, but no, Justin, I, I really do go back to, I need to have the relationships to tell people, Hey, this is what I'm trying to do. How can I help you with this? Is this working for you? How can I adapt it? And bring it. I really haven't found the thing that replaces the personal connection. Yeah. And I love that on the relationship part, I, I feel like a, a big part of what I'm hearing in you describe that is not about using the relationship as a way to communicate to the men and women on the front lines, but it's actually more about communicating from the men and women. That to me seems like why you're emphasizing the relationship. Am I on to something there or, or am I putting words in your mouth? Oh, 100%. I, I, I think you're, I think you're spot on. And, um, there are the people who just want to complain, who just want to tell you why this is never going to work. But when you get out there and you meet the people, you do find the people that are excited about it and that want it to work and that are ready to learn something about it. Finding those people and working with them has been the most valuable thing that I've had the opportunity to do. Um, and, and they will bring other people along with them. It just takes a little bit more time. I, I have found that equally rewarding. In fact, I think I've told a couple of stories about that on previous episodes of the podcast where when you see that transition go from, you know, everybody being very reluctant and anxious about the change that, that we're about to be um, implementing to get a few people on board to really become the champions and to see the transition with those few individuals and then see how that can be contagious. You know, I think uh, positivity can be equally as contagious as negativity, but we have to find those couple of folks that will be, um, you know, the, the champions for that inside the organization. And when we can get them converted, there's been, you know, few more rewarding experiences that I've had to see that transition happen and then watch them take the message out. And, and as you said before, I think in the frontline workforce, maybe more than any other segment of the workforce, it's so much more powerful for one of their own to be bringing that message to them uh, rather than, you know, the folks at corporate, right? And I mean, no disrespect to all of the folks at corporate that may be listening to this podcast, but let's face it, you know, they, they are listening to their peers and they want to know that, you know, some of their peers have embraced this and have kind of cut through the BS that they perceive from, from corporate. So I think it, it's a fantastic, um, you know, goal to have, and it's, it's amazingly rewarding when you actually see it happen. Thanks so too. What, what are some, um, you know, we're talking a lot about the positive stuff and I still want this to be positive, but what are some maybe lessons learned um, from things that perhaps you've tried and maybe didn't get the, the results that you were expecting from, uh, you know, an approach that you took with, with change leadership? Are there any examples that kind of come to mind? Um, well, I think I've actually already told you the end of the stories, but I can tell you a little bit more about the beginning of the stories. Okay, great. Yeah, perfect. Um, so, right, like if I'm going to go talk to mechanics, I want a mechanic beside me. <laughs> <laughs> I yep, never again want to go out and try to have a conversation with a mechanic about so anything that I think they should be doing. So you tried to that do it the other way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was things like, um, you know, uh, we went through the agile development method. So we would have parts and pieces to share. 
and I would gather a group of people, typically virtually, um, to do a demonstration. And we would demo this particular functionality and then immediately the tsunami of questions. Well, how are you going to do this? Well, how are you going to do this? Where is this going to go? Well, how am I going to get to here? Like so far out of my depth so quickly that I was embarrassed that I had even attempted it. And I always, from that point forward, like I, I did that once um, and it, it, I got my, it ate my lunch. Yep. Um, and I, I always made sure, okay, I'm going to make sure that I'm actually got an end user doing the demonstration who understands the language and can better anticipate the questions that, that a true subject matter expert is going to have. Right. And even they might not have the answer. We not, might not be ready to answer that, but at least they know that answer. Um, I am not equipped to do that, to do that piece of it. I, I won't make that mistake again. Um, and then, you know, I, I think the other thing, and, and I'm sure that anybody listening to this podcast who has been re- responsible for a statement of work or trying to drive business or um, trying to pinch a penny and trying to make sure that they're delivering something, You've just absolutely got to have the money in your budget to have the resources that you need to be able to go out and build those relationships. It feels like the easiest thing to go and cut out of the budget, but if if you underfund your training, if you underfund the well, the time, if you underestimate the time that it's going to take to get out there and get people comfortable with using something, especially something for a frontline worker that has got to be flawless the moment that they use it, they don't have time to ramp up proficiency. They need to be proficient at go live. They don't have the luxury of having six weeks to figure it out. They need to know that day. And if you don't budget well to have the resources in place that you need to have, to do the work that needs to get done, that piece of it is going to get, um, you're going to, you're going to regret it. That Jennifer is the exact reason that frontline innovators podcast exists because I have really believed for a long time that if you're going to attempt to implement technology, you really need to think about all the implications. And if you say things like we don't have budget for proper change leadership and training implementation and all the other support that's going to be required to do it right, then you should not do the project. Shouldn't do the project. You're going to end up paying for it. It's either going to be before and proactive or it's going to be after and reactive. And it's probably going to cost you two to three times as much, if not more, right? And it's going to cause a lot more heartburn. And it's something I've come to realize lately is that it will also impact all of your other digital transformations down the road. Because if you didn't prepare properly for this one, you're creating kind of mental scar tissue with all of the, the men and women on the front lines who the next time you try to implement technology are going to remember how poorly you did it last time and how frustrating it was for them. And it's only going to hold back your, your innovation capabilities later. So it's like you're going to pay for it one way or the other. The more you can shift that to being proactive and, and really considerate of the impact that it's going to have on the frontline workers, um, I, the better it's going to be for everyone. And ultimately, the better success that the business will have, you will achieve the business results more effectively and faster. You know, Justin, you bring up a really interesting point because that is one of the other things that we did was we frequently acknowledged our previous failures. The last time we did this to you, it did not go well. And these are these are the reasons why. That is why when we're meeting today, we're doing it this way because we're not making these same mistakes. 
Yeah. Um, and that that got us some credibility that we were willing to acknowledge the fact that we had done this poorly in the past. Um, how we did it poorly and what we were trying to overcome that that has always bought us a little bit of grace from our audience. We've heard that from a few podcast guests, and I had a, a version of that experience the other day. And I, I want to just tell this really quick story because we're running out of time here. But we had a situation recently in my neighborhood where many of us pulled together as a community to essentially complain to our electric utility. And I won't get into all the reasons why we had to do that, but we got together at a nearby facility and the utility company sent over some folks to try and deal with this difficult uh, community of neighbors that were frustrated by our power outages all the time. And the first guy that got up to speak did not say a single thing constructive. He basically wouldn't acknowledge that they had been responsible for some of these things. He tried to talk to us about lightning strikes and squirrels eating electric power lines and all of these other things that we know affects everybody. But for some reason, the electric the electricity was going out in our neighborhood more often than everybody else. So we were like, are, are you telling us we get more lightning strikes than the neighborhood next door? And this guy was just so incredibly ineffective at communicating and the the emotions in this room were growing rather than going down as this man was speaking. And so one of the operations guys that came, he's actually the, the guy responsible for the operations in the field in our area. He kind of pushed the guy in the suit to the side and he came up and he said, you know, let, let me talk to these folks. And he basically came up and said, men and women, I, you know, of this community, I really apologize. We put the wrong fuses in the transformer. We messed up. This neighborhood was built over a period of years and we put the fuses in that were appropriate at that point in time. If we could do it over again differently, we would. So I want to apologize to you, but here's what happened. In September, we replaced the fuses and we have the right fuses in the system now, right? So I, I won't bore you with all the details, but his candor took the, the, you know, the blood pressure from the room down about 50 points, right? Yeah. By acknowledging that yes, they made a mistake. There were some reasons behind it. We're not completely stupid and inept. We just, the circumstances were different 15 years ago when this neighborhood was built out, right? So he went through that whole experience. And so how do I, I connect that back to what we do? Because I think sometimes bringing a little candor and transparency to that communication um, really can help everybody understand that, no, we're not suggesting we're perfect. And we're certainly not suggesting that this tech implementation is going to be perfect right now either. We recognize those gaps in the past. And, and to your exact point, Jennifer, that's exactly why we're out here having this conversation with the men and women that are going to be affected by this so that we can do a better job of setting your expectations and bringing you along so that we can be successful together. And so um, it, it, I just think so much of what we talk about here is about improving the communication that we have with the people that will be affected by that. And I've learned so much from change leaders like you in that process as, as we've talked this through in the podcast. So thank you for that. Welcome. I, this has been a pleasure. <laughs> I, I am curious uh, to hear what your take is on on things. What what's your favorite part about working uh, in and around technology and the way that you do today? Oh, um, you know, I really do like seeing the evolution of um, so much so much of the technology uh, and almost any industry that I have worked in is so outdated because it costs so much to replace it. And so when you walk into an organization and you see somebody who's still using a DOS-based application, and all of a sudden you can replace it with a cloud-based application that they can work with on their phone, um, it is absolutely astonishing the leaps that we have been able to make in, in regards to that. 
Um, I think the only risk that we sort of run with that is, is we do forget it's about people at the end of it, right? Like we, we think it's about the technology, but at the end of the day, it's really about the people. It is. That's a really great point. I was going to ask you, what do you hate about working with technology? Is that part of it? Is it sometimes? Uh, I, I, I do think that that's part of it. The other thing that kind of drives me crazy about technology is the constant need for it to evolve. So the very best example that I can give you of that is iTunes. When iTunes first came out, oh my word, that was an unbelievable way to go out and test music and listen to music and find new music and build a playlist and buy a song for a dollar. Trying to use iTunes today in, in out like I, I don't, I haven't used it in years even, and I know it's not really still a thing, but it's still on your devices and all of that. Um, about hundreds of dollars of music that I lost on iTunes when they when they continued to evolve it to solve the next thing. What if they would have just left it alone? It's kind of an amazing thing. That's a really interesting point. We I've heard that a lot lately. Not even just with the podcast, but outside the podcast is sometimes we just kind of wish things could be left alone, right? And when we're happy with technology at a certain point, we wish it in some cases that it wouldn't evolve. And I wonder if maybe sometimes the, the frontline workers that we're impacting with digital transformation initiatives feel the same way. Like, hey, my old device just worked fine. I've been using it for five years. I just got, you know, my legs under me, how to use this thing proficiently. Please, even if the new one is supposedly an upgrade with air quotes, you know, I'm happy with the downgrade. And uh, I think that's true. I have some applications that I use, you know, uh, day in and day out in my life, and they've made some changes, simple user interface changes that uh, just don't really appeal to me. But unfortunately, you know, I, I still have to, to deal with that change. So I imagine we could use some empathy there when we think about how our frontline workers are thinking about the change that we're implementing, that they probably feel the same way a lot of the time. 100%. There's no doubt about it. Well, we do need, uh, this time has flown, and um, so I do need to wrap this up, but I want to extend an invitation to you uh, for uh, participating in a podcast and spending 45 minutes or so with me on the podcast. I'd like to invite you to participate in a private group that we have on LinkedIn called Frontline Innovators Council. All of the uh, Frontline Innovators participants are invited to participate in the council. And so there are a bunch of folks in there and the, the group is growing by two or three people every week now. So we're excited about that. And uh, really looking forward to keeping this conversation going so that we don't end the conversation right after the podcast, but we can keep that dialogue going. And our mutual friend, Chris Grubbs is in that group as well. So um, you get to come in and, and participate with him and the others in that group. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Sounds great. I'll be in good company. Thank you so much for that, Justin. I appreciate it. Very much. All right. So we have to wrap it up there. Um, I hope all of the audience, I hope you found this uh, conversation as enjoyable as I have. And if so, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skillful.com. That's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. And if you or someone you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Please reach out to me like Chris Grubbs did and uh, make an introduction. We'd love to have more guests that are doing things like uh, Jennifer's doing out on the front lines and uh, share their story on the next podcast. So Jennifer, thanks again for participating and we'll see everybody later. 